1: This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam McWall Samit from Navigant Research.
2: And I'm Rebecca Linland from Rebecca Drives.
0: So, welcome back from CES, you two. I watched from afar and it looks like it was a huge show and uh, lots and lots of stuff to cover. Are you recovered?
1: I, I managed to come back without uh, con- contracting any new diseases, so I, I think I'm in pre- pretty good shape.
0: Yeah, that's good. It's been making the rounds. Yep.
2: I, I had the disease prior to CES in the form of a very bad cold. So... And um, Hopefully, I didn't spread germs, and the blister on my foot is almost healed. So oh, I got that going for me. That's
0: Excellent. Good. You, so you mean you didn't yeah. go and like lick door door handles and stuff? And like, oh, this <laughs> is a really nice iPod for me to cough all over. Uh,
2: Only in the privacy of my own room. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's first talk about the cars that we had that got us maybe to and from the airport or whatever. Um, but uh, Rebecca, you you've been driving the two. I was going to say 2019 something, but no, it's the 2020 (laughs) Toyota Corolla XSE, the sporty one.
2: It is. So they dropped this off right around the same time that I had. I swapped out the Ram 1500 pickup truck for the Corolla. And of course, it was, you know, quite the dramatic change. But I was excited to drive this because I hadn't had a chance before. And this is the one that I had. Is the XSE, uh, and it's got the 2.0 liter uh, four cylinder 16 valve um, with the CVT. It's got the sport suspension, sport drive mode. I I can't say that I notice a significant difference in the sport drive mode, and I, that seems to be kind of a running theme lately.
1: It, it does it, make a little more noise.
2: It well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's. I should say, I didn't notice anything. Positive, <laughs> <laughs> particularly positive about it. So this one has the sport version uh, has these low profile, high performance tires, and they were just incredibly noisy. And of course, the CVT transmission was also rather noisy as well. And so that was a little frustrating because it definitely compromised the experience of driving this vehicle so this one has a starting price of $25,450 and then it has the premium audio with dynamic navigation and that was $1,750 1715 as an option and then it had adaptive front lighting system which is always helpful for $450 and then I had a couple of other paint protection carpet mat Nine hundred and thirty dollar destination fee for a whopping total of twenty nine thousand one hundred and eighty nine dollars. Does
0: that seem expensive for a Corolla to you? I felt like <laughs> it was expensive. I, I'm i not. I'm not challenging. Um, <laughs> it, it seems kind of pricey. It, it is their their top trim, I suppose. Um, in it in is. some way, and
2: and it was. You know what? It was well equipped. It had heated front seats. It had, you know, a nice um, large screen. It had a lot of nice amenities to it. It had wireless charging that actually fit my phone. You know, it had some really nice things to it. Blind spot monitoring, uh, push button start. But wow. And, you know, as we've repeatedly said now, we give Mazda a hard time about their pricing, but I definitely prefer the Mazda 3 to the corolla in terms of that premium experience i mean the mazda has that beautiful interior that really nice dash and you know i definitely have been vocal about the pricing on some of this on some of the mazda products but when you compare it to the corolla i just i really felt like the mazda was a better experience
0: i i will agree there the the Corolla, as good as it is, and, you know, it's pretty good to drive. So I'd be curious how driving them back to back, how much better or better at all the XSE so, is versus the regular Corolla. Because it's, it's, right. it's a good driving car, but the interior is just not, it's not Mazda 3 good.
2: Yeah. And, and as I said, I haven't driven a lower, uh, a lower trim line, but I do remember very distinctly talking about the Mazda 3 and and really feeling like I was in a premium vehicle. I mean, I'm not talking like BMW 3 series or something, you know, but I'm talking about just feeling like I was getting a lot of value and a lot of a lot of creature comforts, a lot of ex, you know the the premium experience within the car was significant in that Mazda 3. And while the Corolla was very very good, you know, I I don't it certainly a long way away from the boxes of the past so I don't want to dismiss that it's a very very good vehicle and you know the the experience overall was very very good it's just that I mean I don't know maybe I'm just getting old those <laughs> price points just they just seem you know I, I just I feel like when you start to get into that $30,000 range first of all there's so much available in that range within the marketplace that has more utility. And yes, I'm thinking about a crossover, but I'm even thinking of something like the Hyundai Kona, you know, or I haven't driven the Hyundai Venue yet, but, you know, something that is still kind of a a car, uh, but just has a little bit more room, just has a little bit more presence on the road. Rather than a compact car like this is.
1: Well, to to defend the Corolla a little bit, and and I have driven the Venue, um, you know, and the Venue, you know, like some of the other recent, you know, uh, subcompact utilities that, that have come to market, you know, the, what we're seeing is a kind of a bifurcation in the, the small utility market between the mm. uh, the really value oriented models like the Nissan Kicks and the Venue, and then you know slightly nicer ones like the uh, the CX30, and well, actually that one's a lot nicer. But but at any rate, those value models that are coming in with starting prices, you know, in the eighteen to nineteen thousand dollar price range, you know, there's a distinct difference there. You know, with they have you know typically you know the hard plastics and everything. And I haven't driven the base Corolla. I have driven the same XSE you drove, Rebecca, and. Mm-hmm. You know, I found that, you know, it's driving dynamics are so much better than any Corolla of the past. And I think visually it actually does have, especially in the XSE trim, it actually does have a, a pretty good presence to it. Um, you know, yeah. and, and it has, has some things about it that I really liked. Like, for example, the belt line, you know, when you look at it from the side, you know, the belt line kind of sweeps down towards the front. And, you know, in that front part of the door, base of the A-pillar area, you know, it that's kind of where it it bottoms out there and it actually helps. I thought I found it helped a lot with visibility, Um, you know, really uh, opened up, you know, got rid of some of the blind spots that we've traditionally had, you know, in that area, especially as they've moved away from, you know, the, um, uh, the pillar mounted mirrors, you know, to, to getting the, the side mirrors mounted on the doors That kind of opens up that corner right at the base of the A-pillar. Yeah,
2: absolutely. The visibility was very good in it, particularly at that A-pillar point, which, of course, for me, because I sit so close, often will intrude on on my line of sight. So that was very good. I don't mean to trash it. I don't mean by any stretch. I mean, that's. It's it's a very very good car. It's just that there's so much competition out there in that price point.
0: Yeah, and- I I I agree that you know 30 grand for a Corolla or any car in that class is really starting to push it. You are solidly into um you know C segment uh territory if the size is something you want, but sometimes the size isn't what people want. You know, I mean, I right. think we've seen right. people who are willing to pay uh, more for a smaller car, because bigger isn't always better. And, you know, the XSE is the top of the range. It's the highest. I think it has the highest list price at, at 25 dollars and a half thousand dollars. I drove the XLE, I think, uh, a while okay. back. And I was still impressed with the way it drove. I really liked the the direct steering. It felt really, really um, way more uh, sort of sharp and willing to turn than mm-hmm. I I've, thought. I've, had ever experienced in a Corolla that you know, the Corolla has always been kind of dull, sort of numb, a definitely a good car, but not real good to drive. If you enjoy driving, you know, it's, it's right. That's not its mission. So I was really surprised. It's always been an appliance. Right. And I was really yeah. surprised at how actually it's real pleasant to drive. The CVT aside, I I do think that that sort of hurts it in, in that sense that, you know, cause you get that motorboarding sensation, but uh, the, the way it goes down the road is, is pretty pleasing. It has you know good space, a good trunk.
1: I still don't love the tech.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and,
1: yeah, I don't and, like the. tune yeah. is pretty pretty mediocre by modern standards.
2: It, it it it's pretty brutal. The other thing too, I was disappointed in was there really wasn't a lot of storage space within that center console. I there's the the cubby hole is very very small. There's two small cup holders. It was pretty marginal from a storage standpoint, from from an interior storage standpoint also. But again, I I, you know, you're absolutely right, Dan. There are people that that this is the perfect size of vehicle for. Thirty-four miles per gallon was fantastic, which is just about what I got. You know, that I was I was very close to getting that as well. And, you know, there there's a lot of really good things about it. I think if it was even twenty seven thousand or twenty six thousand, I would be a little bit more enthusiastic about
0: it. Yeah, I can see that. I, and I do think too even if as we say like you know this is the great of right size for some people even at that size there's a ton of competition um which makes it hard necessarily to, to choose cuz even as it's the nicest sort of most refined Corolla ever it's still a Corolla It's look got some of those uh, lower grade materials you can see in the interior that some other brands don't. Um and just I did I did like The, um, the stuff they charge you extra for, I liked the, the adaptive headlights. Um, I I thought they were actually really good. Um, and and being able to see at night is a huge plus.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a positive.
0: (laughs) Um, and they all have the, the Toyota safety sense that like the safety suite of, of stuff standard, which I think in this class of car where you're going to get, uh, beginners all the way up to sort of like value seeking, um, older folks. That's really I think that's a key feature to make standard is they're not charging you extra to to give you the safety tech. And I I like that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, again, there's there's a lot of good things about this vehicle. And if you're looking for that compact car, uh, this is this is definitely it's a Toyota Corolla. So you're going to get the durability and reliability that one expects. But I would encourage our listeners to shop around as well, because of course we haven't even mentioned the Honda Civic, which I love.
1: I, I agree. You there. Know, and,
2: <laughs> and competes directly with this. And I just think the you know, the, there's so the, the driving experience, the dynamics of the Honda Civic, I just don't think can really be beat in this class. It's just so much
1: fun. And, you know, in, in Toyota's defense, you know, the XSE does start at, uh, what, I guess with uh, delivery about 26 and a half. So, you know, that's, you're looking at about $3,000 worth of options that were on that car. And, you know, right. even, even the, you know, the, the starting point of the XSE, it's pretty well equipped and, you know, Toyota does put their, um, uh, their uh, ADAS package standard across the board, even on the base L model, which starts, you know, at $20,000. So, you, you know, there, there, there is a lot available, you know, and there there are more affordable variants of the Corolla available that, you know, Toyota has their Safety Sense 2 um, package on here, uh, you know, on every variant of the Corolla, just as they do on all of their other mainstream models now. While the XSE is, you know, especially the way it, it was equipped, the way that Rebecca drove it and the one that I drove a few months ago, um, you know, it, it's getting, you know, fairly pricey for, you know, what is a mainstream compact car, although, You know, compact today, you know, is more like midsize was 10, 15 years ago. I mean, you know, we're this is is the size of what a Camry was, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, So you're getting a lot more car for your money as well.
2: Yeah, and you are certainly. And again, if you're coming out of an 11 year old car, this is going to be an absolute
0: delight. That's true. I I do wish that they offered the. Do they offer the XSE with the manual? I don't think they do. I think no. the only one you can think get with the manual is like the L I, or the I S believe, or whatever. I be, the yeah, I
1: believe the L, maybe the LE are the only ones. Um, but they, you know, yeah. there's, and for those that are looking for maximum fuel economy, there's also a hybrid now, uh, Corolla yeah. hybrid, you know, which has the same styling and everything, you know, all the other good things about it, you know, and it gets 53 miles per gallon.
0: Yeah, and that's that, sort of like that starts at
1: $23,000.
0: That's taking the wind out of the Prius. Uh, sales oh yeah are, uh, and i think that's that was always the intent you know we saw a bunch of stories not too long ago like last week or so about that that actual thing like Prius sales are way down but toyota hybrid sales across the board are actually up because yep. they have moved the tech into the
1: their uh, sort of normal models uh, hybrid is going mainstream now
0: yeah And that was always what the Prius was intended to do was to sort of soften up the market for it. And then uh, it was, it was always intended to go away. So.
1: Although for a while there for Toyota, you know, really seemed to want to make, you know, Prius, you know, its own sub brand, you know, they really wanted to expand on Prius, you know, in the early part of this decade or the early part of the last decade when it, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't build enough Priuses, you know, they introduced the Prius V and the Prius C and, you know, I think they, they wanted to, see how far they could stretch that Prius brand. And now, you know, all of those except for the standard Prius are are gone. And even the the standard Prius is fading fast.
0: Yeah.
2: I think it's a, I think it was a critical miscalculation of the, of the equity in the Prius brand at a time when younger buyers, millennials who don't have that same kind of feel, I mean, Prius and Boomer are practically synonymous, <laughs> you know? And so and but others don't feel like that. And so I think that if they had expanded the Prius lineup ten years ago, I think they would have been in a much better shape than when they did it.
0: Yeah, well I was a little confused by how they did it too the Prius always had that sort of interesting look I, I say interesting kind of interesting is yes. so nice <laughs> um, that was very kind of you <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but then, and, you it was know, very Prius much v, about virtue signaling
0: yes and the yes. Prius, the Prius v though like <laughs> the larger one sort of looked like it belonged but the prius c which was my favorite prius by the way uh just it looked like a tiny toyota hatch it wasn't it didn't have that familiar look so it was almost it was like basically a, a Yaris hybrid yeah it was a bunch of products yeah. and they they just stuck a name uh, you know they took what they had stuck the powertrain and it stuck a name on it and threw it on the market um i mean it was maybe it was a cynical move i don't know i'm i'm pleased to see that that it's sort of the the tech has moved over into the regular models cuz it, it's good. It's good to drive now. Uh, it kind of doesn't matter. There was all kinds of like, uh, there was a quite a hue and cry about hybrids before, but a hybrid Corolla, man, that seems like a really good idea to me. And the car itself Absolutely. is pretty good. So, um, I agree. The, 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 Corolla itself is a sub brand and, and you know not in ways, but in reality, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of choice there. So, uh, just, it sounds like the XSE is the one to avoid. <laughs>
2: Well, just, just from a price point, from a price and also from the, those, the tires did the, did the experience no favors because it really added a lot of road noise without adding a lot of anything else.
0: Yeah. And it, so it didn't feel sporty to you at all. The 18 inch,
1: eight inch wheels look good.
2: <laughs> I didn't have, I, I didn't have something to compare it to. And it was fun to drive. It was fun to drive. It did feel sporty when I put it in sport mode. That didn't seem to help anything except make it louder. Yeah. You know, Um, but so I guess, you know, the sport, it's fun, um, but I would have rather had different a a quieter experience.
0: Okay. I can, you Uh, know, yeah, The, the Corolla itself, like all Corollas now feel they feel pretty good. They feel like they were driven by somebody who who likes to drive cars when they were tuning them. Um, so that's good. Like you, you yeah, it, it
2: does. And, and there is a six speed manual available on the SE and I think that would be all sorts of fun. Yeah. Well, oh,
0: yeah. Mm, eh, I'd have to drive uh, for, it. <laughs> well, yeah, you have to drive it. I mean, I'm always leaning towards a manual. So. <laughs> Even a bad manual though. Sometimes I go, well, bad, bad manual versus CVT. I'd probably pick bad manual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'd rather have bad manual. I, you
1: know, I've, 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 I've had a brief drive in the, um uh, the Corolla hatchback with the, uh, with their six speed. It's not, it's not a great six speed, but Mm. you're right. I I would take that over, uh, a CVT any day.
0: Well, I have one more thing, I think to (laughs) say one more observation here. And that is, so the XSE starts around $26,000 and yours was priced up at 30. And you, you know what you can get? For $30,000, if you buy mm. carefully and you want something yep. that's kind of sporty. A VW GTI.
2: What? Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I'm sorry, that's no contest. Or a Civic SI. <laughs> Again, no contest.
2: It, 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 no contest. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: That's the same as it ever was, though. Corolla, even when they say they're sporty, they're not terribly sporty. Uh, they're Aye. good. It's a good car. Um, just, you know. It's not. It's not those cars. It's not what it aspires right. to. Be. <laughs> uh right. so, let's just move on. Uh, Sam, you are luxuriously ensconced in the 2019 Genesis G80
1: Sport. Uh, I w- I was briefly ensconced in it for just a few days before our heading out to Vegas for CES. <laughs> it's it's now gone and has been replaced in the driveway by uh, by the Lincoln Aviator Grand Touring. But we'll talk about that one next time. Um, so. Uh, yes, it does have low profile tires because it was the, it's the sport with all wheel drive and the three point three liter twin turbo V six, uh, which a good it, engine, which it is a lovely engine, um, you know and you know Genesis uh, eight speed automatic transmission, yeah you know, and you know this was a, a very well equipped car with with lots of stuff in there, you know including a full suite of ADAS, um, and one of the things that uh, that separates Genesis from the the Hyundai and Kia brands is that, uh, you know, uh, you know, for my preference, it has a central control knob for the infotainment system, which, you know, I, I continue to insist is the, the better approach than touchscreens. Um, and I will do so till my dying day. Um, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, I've, I've, we've, we've talked about the G80 on several occasions before, you know, driven it, driven it previously in a couple of different variants, uh, including the sport, and you know it—it it is really one of the most underrated, um, you know, mid-size, you know, to larger luxury sedans on the market. You know, I think that you know Hyundai deserves—or Genesis, I should say—Hyundai Motor Group deserves a lot of credit, you know, for what they've done with this car. You know, it's a really handsome design, and you know, it's—it's it's, you know one of these fastback sedans, but you know, because it's a rear-wheel drive platform, it's got that you know, that nice longer dash to axle ratio, you know, shorter overhang in the front. You know, so when you look at it in profile, you know, it, it's it got that sportier look because they push the front axle forward uh, more. Um, you know, they uh, the rear seat is plenty roomy. It's not quite as, as cavernous as the G90 that you were driving, Rebecca. Uh, but, it, you know, it's still more than adequate. And, you know, in the, the sport trim, you know, it's got uh, these dark gray, darker gray wheels the uh the grill is is kind of combination of uh black chrome and and um you know black uh mesh grill and it's just a, I think it's a great looking car and a great driving car and just i really enjoyed it for the the few days i was in it again
2: I remember i drove that in korea before it came to the states and it was really good it was really really good I mean i think it's the best of the trio that they have out right now
1: yeah in wow, terms of really?
2: sportiness and engagement and it, it was it was a blast uh, uh, you know
1: i i think you know in terms of raw sportiness you know if that's what you're looking for you know in a genesis i would say the g70 is probably you know it because it's smaller and oh, lighter i'm sorry you're um, in the 80 yeah this is yeah this is uh, the i'm 80. sorry
2: the the 80 is is in the middle of of the three the G70 it's, is definitely the best. Yeah, it's yeah. and, know, the, the, and the, 80. the G80 but the g is better than the G90 for sportiness but that's not what the G90 is intended for.
1: Right. Yeah, the G90 is more the pure luxury model. You know, the G80 is kind of a nice a really nice balance between the two. It's it's big but it's not enormous uh you yeah. know like the G90 and you know it's got a good sized trunk and everything so I, I think it's 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 a it's a really nice balance. You know, and if you're looking for something You know, as an alternative to, say, a 5 Series or, you know, an Audi A6 or a Mercedes E-Class, you know, in in typical Genesis fashion, you know, this gives you, you know, pretty much everything you're going to get on one of those, uh, you know, great looks and, you know, great driving dynamics and at, at a much more reasonable price. You know, I mean, this one, you know, is pretty much loaded up. And, you know, with delivery, it came, you know, to 58, 745, you know, so less than $59,000, you know, all in, you know, aside from tax. And, you know, you've got, you know, adaptive cruise control with full stop and go capability, a really nice big heads up display, you know, really comfortable seats, really nice materials inside. I think it's just really well executed all around. And I think it's, you know, it's a great, great sedan if that's what you're looking for. Um, you know, unfortunately, less and less of the market is looking for a sedan like this, right. especially nobody, nobody in the US. That, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the the next new product we're going to see from Genesis is the uh, the GV80, which they have recently started releasing some um, some images of, some teaser sketches of, and I think we're probably going to see that in New York in uh, in April at the New York Auto Show.
2: Yeah. I think that, you know, what's cool about the the G80, though, is that it's it's that vehicle that if you want a, a, a luxurious but sporty experience on your commute, I think it delivers in that regard. As you say, like it's just that really nice balance between uh, a luxurious car and yet if you want it to be sporty, you can push it and it will it will happily respond. And I love that combination because, you know, when you're going out with your family or something, maybe you don't want to have a really aggressive drive and you don't have to have it aggressive. But if you're by yourself or with one other person, and you're going to the office or something and you want a little excitement, you want to spice up your commute. I think it's a great vehicle for that.
1: No, total, totally agree. And, you know, it's got not exceptional, but decent fuel economy. You know, I got about 21 miles per gallon with it, you know, which. For you know, sedan with this kind of performance and this size is reasonable, you know, not not yeah. exceptional.
2: Yeah, it's not bad, yeah. but it's not great in today's world. Well, I no. mean,
0: it's got what is it? That's three hundred and seventy something horsepower, three hundred and sixty something horsepower from that, that twin turbo V6. So it, it's it got a lot of mouths to feed there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> G- a good give, a way to given, put given it. The, it Dan, that's like why that. I said.
1: Given the performance <laughs> level, it's it's very reasonable. Yeah. You know, so if if what you're looking for is you know significantly better fuel economy, you'll probably want to wait around. You know, at least from Genesis until they start rolling out some electrified models in the next year or so. Yeah. And they're yeah,
0: they're coming. Just everybody's doing it. So and yeah, I I find it hard not to love the Genesis lineup. I think that they've done a really good job at translating what was great about the brands we all know and love. Um, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, the things that made us love those brands, you know, the G, uh, the G70 is tidy. It drives tidy and it, uh, it just has that sort of performance DNA in it. And the G80 is that sort of mid-level where it, it does what you say it does. You know, it has that sort of dichotomy. It, it can be that regal long wheelbase kind of luxury car or uh, it can mix it up still. And I can't wait to try out the, the G90. I haven't had a chance to, to do it, to get one in the driveway. But man, does that car look good? Uh, it, it does. Even the big Go grill. Go ahead, Sam. I like even the it, big grill.
2: <laughs> it, I don't mind the big grill, shockingly. But I the, G, the thing with the G90, as I talked about before, is it just, it's, you never forget that you're in a big car. As opposed to the G80, where I think you can. Oh, uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. You know, the G90 is, it's always big <laughs> <laughs> and it always drives big and it always reminds you, you know, really around every curve that you're in a big ass luxury sedan. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I think it's, I don't know. I just, it, it's, I like, I like if, if the G, if you can fit your life into the G80, I think that's arguably preferable, but the styling though, I will say the G90 styling is beautiful. I love the simplicity of the back. I like the fact that they're finally spelling out the word Genesis, as opposed to just having a badge that could be any number of enviable, uh, you know, uh, marks, but I think that it's important that they establish the brand because i don't think they've really done that very well quite yet
1: no i, it's, I agree yeah it's, it's been a process what i think one thing i like about both the g80 and the g90 maybe slightly less so with the g70 you know because it's got the fender vents and everything you know is you know it it's a it's a modern but you know not over over designed car mm. you know and yeah. and from what we've seen of the um you know the the sketches that they've released of the uh the G V eighty, you know, I think it, it follows that same theme, you know, of keeping it um, you know, fairly uh restrained. You know, so there's you know, it's it's got its own design language, but it's it's not overdone.
2: Yeah. Well I think that Luke and I can never say his last Dunk name, so Wolf. I'm gonna cruise what is it? Dunkervolk? Dunk, yeah. So Dunkervolk, I think that he, you know, he came from Bentley, Lambo, Audi. I think that he does have that lovely restraint in his designs where, you know, I often equate it to like when they deal with a, uh, when they're working on the clay model, just go over it one more time and just skim it back a little bit. And just that, that that restraint that just understated. I think he does that really, really well. And we're starting to see his designs and his influence on those designs. Of course, along with Peter Schreier, uh, you know, I, but I think that, that there's, there's really good stuff that's going to be coming out of Genesis.
0: Agree. Yeah, I agree. I can't wait for the, their suvs and crossovers to land which is a weird thing to say Super <laughs> weird thing to say. Uh, but that's a good pivot for us um so i've been driving the 2020 ram rebel eco diesel uh <laughs> Love it. it's a it's a lovely truck it's a lot of truck i i haven't built this one online uh but it starts around sixty thousand dollars um it has a lot of the features that y- you know we've talked about in the past it has that split tailgate which uh is pretty simple. It's like elegant in simplicity. It's not quite the Swiss Army knife that the uh, GMC multi-pro tailgate is, but this is a, a good way to get some more functions out of a pretty simple design. So I, I liked that. We actually took it skiing, and so I just... Had that it was like you know it could open it up like a door you just toss all the crap in the bed and just <laughs> slam it shut yeah. uh, so that's nice it's super comfortable inside because Ram does the best interiors uh, and the de- the detailing is really impressive you know there's two different colors for the stitching uh, the Rebel has its own sort of color palette so it's it's uh, red and white stitching and then there's red uh, in interior trim materials um, so it it looks really good it presents really well it's very comfortable seating it's quiet going down the road uh and the rebel itself has that sort of extra extra uh sort of aggression in its appearance some of the the blacked out trim and the white letter tires and the the rebel graphics and stuff um i'm not sure if it has increased uh ride height it
1: might it it does it's 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 got the off-road tuning
0: yeah how are the tires on like the highway um you don't have any incentive to go faster than about 70 miles now <laughs> like, <laughs> loud. Tra- they're not it's it, they're a little loud but not it's not particularly loud inside it's very very interesting sort of well well damped in in the the noise department mm. uh the tires are just they're those uh sort of more off-road knobbier tires so they' they're not really happy about uh getting pushed too fast you, they they get squishy and yeah you're fine with that because it's just a comfortable place to be rolling along <laughs> listen to the radio um the e- the most interesting thing to me was the the three liter eco diesel um v6 which um yeah t- how is that it it's okay I don't oh. get the point. Uh, I mean, I get the point that it's got like 480 f- pound feet of torque, um, but it seems really out of place in the Rebel. Just because of its its power delivery, it's really soft off the line, um, and then it does it certainly has good torque. It's very well behaved. It starts right up when it's cold. It's pretty quiet. Mm. It's still got a little of that diesel clatter. I think they they let some of that through, so you know that you can hear what you've bought. Uh, <laughs> um, it it matches really well with the transmission. It's a very well behaved powertrain. I just uh, I wanted a little bit more off the line. Torque that I, maybe I'm just trained to like. Wow, to like but that's that. what diesels known for. Yeah it it needs to get up a sort of a it needs to get some head pressure up. It needs to get the boost going oh. before it really starts to put its shoulder to the work. And maybe that's by design so that it doesn't tear up the transmission or spin the tires or something. It's it's really easy to modulate the torque. So mm. that's I think probably good. I also don't know how great this particular truck would be at towing because of the, the way it's, it it does have the air suspension. So you can put it in, you know, tow mode or whatever, and it'll, it'll settle down a bit, but I'm, I'm just not sure that this is the right truck to be putting that torque to work, but I don't tow a lot. So I don't, I don't, I don't have the
1: expertise. I, I would expect that, that, that off the line softness that you're feeling now probably has something to do with recalibrating it, you know, to really try not to cheat on emissions. Um, because, you know, one of the places, you know, one of the times when uh, you're getting the most emissions from an engine, you know, is during that initial acceleration. So my guess is that they've really dialed things back, you know, in that in, initial acceleration, you know, to minimize the particulates and minimize the NOx production in that region. Because that's, that's where they're most likely to have issues with that. And, you know, yeah. FCA, you know, has, you know, they recently settled with EPA you know, on um, violating emission standards with the previous generation of, of this engine. So that, w- that would be my guess what's happening there. As far as, you know, why you would want this particular engine, my guess is that, um, you know, as with Ford and, and with GM, you know, this really is aimed at the towing market. And it may not have the, you know, in, you know, in the form of a three-liter six-cylinder, it may not have the ultimate towing capability, um that the big v8s would have you know in terms of the the peak but um you know where the where the diesels really have an advantage is in fuel economy when you are actually under load towing and if you tow a lot if you only tow a couple of times a year you know like towing your boat you know yeah, from your driveway to the truck. lake in the in the spring <laughs> and then hauling it out of the lake in the fall and putting it back in storage you know well even you know having you know having you know yeah, in that case, you know, if that's the only time you tow, you know, and you don't really need a truck at other times, you know, borrow one or rent one. But, you know, even even if you do need to own a truck, you know, having a gas engine, you know, may be a better option for you in those cases. But if you're towing all the time, like, you know, for example, if you've got a horse trailer and you're towing it to horse race, you know, horse shows all the time, or, you know, you're a landscaper, you know, that's, you know, towing a bunch of equipment, things like that you know, on a daily basis, then the difference in operating costs with the diesel versus a gas engine are going to be huge. And so that's, that's where it makes sense to have the diesel, you know, for the average driver of of one of these trucks that, you know, if you're not using, if you don't have that kind of use case, it probably doesn't make as much sense to spend that five grand on the diesel engine.
0: Yeah. I, I can see that. And the fuel economy is great. It's getting 21 miles to the gallon, 21, 22, um, which I was, I was pretty impressed by, uh, although I, I have yet to go put fuel in it, which <laughs> may be less impressive, uh, given <laughs> the cost because diesel is you know, a bit more expensive, um, than just the, the regular grade of fuel you'd, you'd be able to get away with in a, in a gas engine. So it, it is, it's a really nice truck. Uh, I, I like it quite a bit. And the, the Ram I think deserves its position. It keeps climbing in, the, in sales and uh, they've earned it. You know, I, I think it's, a, it's a really well-executed pickup. The one big glaring issue is the infotainment it's got this (laughs) giant screen and I can't figure out how to do a damn thing anymore. I just like sat there and stared at it the other day, trying to figure out how to like, how do I just enter a destination with the nav? And there's some way where you can make the whole screen, the map, but it, it doesn't, there's not a button for it. That's obvious. It's, and the processor is slow. So I'm trying to enter the, the name of my, you know, destination so it can search for it. And it's like, it's lagging when I'm trying to enter the Did you try voice? Name. Uh I tried a little bit and it got yeah. confused there too. Like I just oh, I don't know what happened with um UConnect because UConnect has been so good for so long. It's been easy to use. This is not easy to use, and it's glossy yeah. and it's just crappy. <laughs> my
2: my brother had similar issues. I mean, I asked him directly, I said, how long did it take you to get used to it? He said it was it was a few hours was what he said. How long did you
0: sit there and look at it, trying to figure out how do I just change from the radio to some other source?
2: Yeah, that was definitely initially a challenge. But then I do think that he kind of got used to it a little bit. I know. I feel like I. I. I don't know. I, I think I was I wasn't bad with it, Um, which but, you know, then again, I can break anything that you need <laughs> technology wise. And so if I was able to figure it out, that means that most people probably can't um is what I have found because <laughs> I think very differently or I use this stuff very differently. So I don't know. I think I think it's a known challenge, though.
0: Yeah, it, it was, um, it was a bit of a shock because again, the Chrysler has for so long had you connect has been really, really friendly and this was not anywhere near as friendly. It it seems like a real, I don't want to say it's like dangerous, but it just, it makes you think too much. And maybe again, with more than a week in the car, uh, it would become a non-issue, but it's, it's complex um, well, anything you're anything you're
2: anytime you're distracted yeah. by it, that's a problem right there. Right. I mean, that's the thing is that it can't be a distraction. It needs to be something that's intuitive.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it's not it's not as it's not intuitive enough um, Yeah, for my taste. But uh, I think that's one of those things that there's always that that friction between what. Those of us who have the car for a short time and to evaluate it are going to say, and then those who own it. And it, there may be some yeah. things that after you spend some time with it, you actually really appreciate. Uh, I have found that I don't appreciate this off the bat. So uh, I'll need to spend more time <laughs> well, with it and maybe we'll circle back next week. But.
1: Well, fortunately, you have the option of saving yourself $3,000 and just, you know, not getting the, uh, the Rebel 12 package, you know, you, you know, that package that includes the 12 inch Uconnect system. And you can get just the the regular eight point four inch, the the one you're used to, which, as you say, I think does work better, and it retains you know physical controls for the climate control because what well, one of, one has of the physical issues physical
0: controls for climate control too. Uh, it, they're hidden. They're 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 often the side of the screen, and it's got you know a mode button that will cycle through, and it's got uh, temperature.
1: Uh, yeah, but you still have to touch some <laughs> stuff on the screen. You know, I I prefer the the base setup. You know, the eight eight and a half inch setup that just has three big knobs, you know, at the, yeah. you know, for the temperature and the fan yeah. and, and the mode, you know, and I think that system works just works a lot better. And, you know, then you have the, the, the previous you connect for system, you know, that, that has that nice, clean, easy to use interface. that's responsive. And I think generally works a lot better. Unfortunately, I think, you know, we're, we're going to be seeing more of this stuff, uh you know these big screens you know they i just got a um an email that came uh, the other day from uh Mark Truby head of communications at Ford you know that sent out to to everybody in in media uh you know with some of the highlights of what's what's coming up in 2020 for them you know and among those things is you know all new um F150 that's going to be coming later this year and i have little doubt that one of the options in there is going to be that same 15-inch SYNC 4 system that we saw in the Mustang Mach-E, which is the only system that's available there. Um, You know, at least from an interface standpoint, I think that one actually works a little better than uh, the 12-inch Uconnect. And it does have a big, you know, big volume knob on the bottom of the screen. So that helps as well.
0: Yeah, so I don't want to sound like I'm opposed to the large screens. I I have my issues with having a large screen in the cabin just because of of light pollution. But that seems like when you pick the right screen, that can be mitigated. Uh, The issue I really have is like, does it pass the can you operate this thing without looking at it test? And that's important for secondary controls, Uh, maybe less so for the, the audio system other than volume and tuning. Um, but you know, for HVAC, I feel like that's, that's actually an important thing. You, you should be able to just reach out and grab those and just know where they are with, with muscle memory.
1: I um, totally agree.
0: You know, so I have to stare at the screen and figure out what to poke. And, and it's, it's, we've said this constantly, so I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but. No, let's belabor
1: the point until they stop doing this stuff. <laughs> I mean, not going to they're it's, not going to stop doing just, it. It's, it's bad user experience. It's terrible. It, and, it's, and manufacturers um, shouldn't be doing it
0: especially with an aging population uh i I feel like you you know you, you really need your human factors people to put on the old suit and sit in the car and try to use the damn thing um and I'm sure they do to a certain point but <laughs> I, I I don't I don't get how you would release something like this and and it's not just FCA you know we've talked about it with census even you know sync took a while to to get better I mean even i drive it's refined now but it's still like it's a very deep system and the way everything integrates with your phone now, especially with BMW is like the car is an extension of your phone in a sense. And that, that really makes all the personalization possible, which takes a lot of the work out of it, but that's really, really hard for us to evaluate because we're not, we're not getting that ownership experience where the car really becomes a lifestyle device. Uh, so some, I think some of our complaints are mitigated by the actual ownership experience but i think others of them are just like it's just bad design overall and please fix it <laughs> <laughs> before i crash your stuff i don't you know like because i'm trying to figure out how to do something um you know the the, the the ram other overall other than that like it's it's a it's a lovely it's a lovely large truck i like it, it looks tough it's great on the road it's, it's great off road to, too. Like yeah, I mean,
1: uh, it, I've driven the Rebel off road and and it yeah you know, it is very capable.
0: Yeah, it has like, I think locking functions on the the four wheel drive system and, and stuff like. It's just this is a solid truck. Complaints about the UI aside, it's it's a it's a solid truck, and I think they deserve to be making the gains they're making because it's just I'm impressed. We just spent ten minutes complaining about big screens (laughs) you guys were at ces which is i'm sure there's no shortage of big screen i never understood the big screen thing like i when big screen tvs were a thing it's like i i don't i don't know back when it was standard def it's like you you guys know there's only 525 vertical lines right like the larger your screen the more you're going to see the lines but now that we have high def i still like i don't know i'm not as impressed by a large tv screen as I guess the common man, it just, it doesn't really do anything for me. I'm just like, okay, whatever. It's a big TV moving on. But now that I've finished my editorial, uh, what did you guys see (laughs) at CES that really stood out? That was impressive. There's a few, we have a few things on our list. Why don't we just pick one and go?
1: You want to go first, Rebecca? Yeah, I think, I think you had the most interesting ride of, of, of either. Oh,
2: well, yes. I mean, I, I definitely, hit a bucket list item um, very unexpectedly. And thanks to Sam, because he sent on the invitation to me. Uh, I got to ride in the Goodyear blimp. which That's
0: old tech. That's it like was insane.
2: Well, actually, <laughs> it actually, was their most recent version. It was built in 2018. But I do love the fact that Zeppelin built it.
1: <laughs> did <laughs> did it really? seems... Yeah, I, be- yes. I believe it actually is technically a Zeppelin now. You know, the difference between a blimp and a Zeppelin, a blimp, has no structure to support the balloon. Yes. and a zeppelin does have a structure.
0: Isn't
2: that always a the engineer? Always the engineer. It it is near <laughs> to being a dirigible.
0: <laughs>
1: well, d- a dirigi- a dirigible, is, dirigible is the uh, is the generic term that covers all of those types of airships. So both both blimps and zeppelins are dirigibles. Uh, but okay. then, but then a, a you know a zeppelin specifically has a structure that supports the balloon.
2: And this does have that. It was. Um, I'll, I'll actually. I'll post some things on Twitter. I. I haven't done that yet. I don't know. I'll post it on our our feed. I. I think that probably there was a, there was a couple of things that were very surprising. First of all, it is a brand new Zeppelin, and it does have an aluminum aluminum structure around it. I, there were so many surprises because I was just like I didn't know what I was going to do. I, it comfortably seats eight to uh, ten people. And it has uh, it it actually it was incredibly quiet and but it had windows open, which was so much fun to be able to have windows like you're not used to, you know, when you're obviously in an aircraft, it's usually all enclosed. We could not go any higher than about twenty five hundred feet. What they told us was that they typically try and keep it at around three thousand to thirty three hundred or below because then the helium starts expanding and that's sub op,
0: <laughs> obviously. But when you go <laughs> when you go higher than that, the helium expands, right? The helium starts
2: expanding and starts mixing and that's a bad thing. So a couple of things that were um, that were pretty significant improvements with this airship is it does have two wheels. So it has a fore and aft. And so when they land or when you take off, you can particularly when you land, you don't have to do that steep decline anymore to to grab the single unicycle wheel at the front of the vehicle. You can now land it more more horizontally, which, of course, is much more comfortable, but also in my mind, a little bit safer, too. That was a really cool thing because people had told me they're like, oh, my gosh, wait till you take off. It's super scary. But it wasn't actually. It was very much of just Did a just float up a horizontal and a vertical lift in a horizontal position. The other fun thing, and I don't know how they do this at the very beginning of the day, but as they were moving people back and forth, it was two people on, two people off, very Noah Ark-esque. But because I because the balloon will rise up if there's not enough weight. In there, <laughs> and so they—I believe—at the beginning of the day, they hold it all down. Everybody, and there's just held—it's—it's it's ropes. I mean, it's almost this super low-tech um, uh, control mechanism. And they load up the airship, and then throughout the day, they make sure that there's the same amount of weight, so it doesn't float away. So that was kind of fun. Uh, and then when you're up there, it's so quiet. And, you know, again, like that's, it's just such a different experience. It was so cool. I mean, it, people have compared it to a hot air balloon, which I've never been in, uh, but it was just lovely. It was like, I, I just kind of felt like I could be up there all day long. And there is a bathroom on board, which was kind of fun. It's just like a typical, you know, typical uh, airplane bathroom. But again, these kinds of luxuries that did not exist in other times. The cockpit was quite small, um, open to the cabin so you could see it. But it was pretty narrow. It was pretty small, you know, pilot and co-pilot, uh, joystick control. And, you know, so there's things that were definitely taken from aviation. So gen- uh, Goodyear, our host, they... Uh, Try and have thirteen pilots uh, at all times. Right now, they're down to eleven uh, airship pilots. They typically travel in a crew of about thirty, though. So it's a pretty it's a pretty big effort to bring the airship to different places. Uh, most of the people that have come from uh, the military, you know, or some other training, the our pilot actually. Uh, there was actually two women pilots of those 11 uh two of them are women one did come from the military the other one actually Andrea she actually has never flown in the military she she had started she she took got her her aviation license and then she actually decided to try uh, uh, flying airships instead and never went back, which was really kind of cool. So she's been doing it for like 15 years or 18 years or something. It was crazy. And, you know, for the most part, most of the people have been doing this for quite some time. And, you know, it's just really, really cool. It was it was an absolutely fantastic experience.
0: So did they have it there just to to promote some other like for some other reason or is it just. It's cool tech on its own that Goodyear wanted to show
1: off.
2: I think it's a little bit of just cool tech on its own. I mean, Sam, did you have a backstory on
1: it? Uh, not on, I mean, not on why the blimp was there. You know, I think Goodyear was at the show this year. Uh, I actually did have a chance to meet their CTO on uh, Monday oh, evening. Oh,
2: nice. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah,
1: you and know, we talked a little bit about what, what Goodyear is doing in the mobility space. Um, you know, and, you know they're, they're making advances in their, their tire technologies. And one of the interesting things that I was not aware of is that Goodyear is actually using soy oil uh, rather than petroleum now for the in manufacturing the tread part of the tire? You know, so oh. tire, tires have always been made from petroleum, but they're they've started using soy oil in a couple of different models of tires now for the tread part of it. Um, so that's that's new. You know, they're they're working on trying to make tires more sustainable. Uh, you know, and they're they're also doing some interesting things with you know they're, they're doing some experimentation with having sensors that are actually built into the tire construction and, but it's probably going to be a while before we start to see that in production. But what they are doing now is they're, they're looking because they, they understand how the tire functions. They are able to use some of the, some of the vehicle sensor data, things like wheel speeds and various other vehicle sensor data um, in combination. They've developed algorithms in combination with what they know about how the tire actually works To be able to provide back better feedback into other systems in the car about, uh, you know, for example, what the road conditions are, you know, what what the friction coefficient is between the tire and the road. So you can have better control uh, over stability control systems, for example, or ABS. Um, So they're doing a lot of interesting stuff that you wouldn't normally think of, you know, for a tire maker. Um, and and one mm. other note, I was just looking at the the pictures of the new blimp uh, online um, as you were speaking, Rebecca. And I think one of the reasons why the blimp is is so quiet now uh, is because it is because it does have that structure. You now, in the past, the blimps, the the motors that that drop that propel the blimp forward, were actually mounted on the gondola, which is the part underneath that you sit in. Um, so they would have yeah. was always a lot louder. The the new one, because it has that structure inside the balloon, um, they actually mount the the motors, uh, the propellers uh, up on the side of the, um, the balloon. So they're up and away from the gondola. So that that would probably explain why it was so much quieter uh, than you would. You might have thought
2: it was a very serene, really lovely experience. And just super cool. I mean, it was it was just amazing, and it was really fun because I went with my friend Tom, who has always wanted to go up in the blimp. And growing up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, like he did, <laughs> uh, he, he said that it used to come to some big agricultural fair there, EEI or something. I don't know what it is, and I and he was supposed to, he was scheduled to go up in it as a teenager, and then the weather didn't cooperate, and so. You know, 40 years later, he was able to go up in it. And so that was really, really, it was a lot of fun to see somebody so excited as well as I was too. I mean, we all had a blast. And so uh, it was, you know, just one of those things that you see over sporting events and everything. And, you know, there, and there it was. The pilot did tell me, he said, you know, a lot of times he said they're at the event and he goes, you just can't see anything (laughs) because it's so far away. But they're also, you know, it's, it's, tricky to to fly that thing because it is gas you're dealing with a natural element you're dealing with the winds and the and you know the weather and you've got to be really careful uh, you know there were some times when we kind of dipped and swayed and lurched a little bit and so you know there i'm sure there's plenty of times when it's not nearly as serene as the ride that we had over
1: vegas yeah, I, I I wish my schedule had allowed for me to go on a ride in that thing, too. I think that would have been a lot of fun. I'm glad you got the opportunity
2: You can see my priorities because I ditched everything else <laughs> to go on that thing.
0: Hey, I, look, you're never going to you may not ever get another chance. Right. You know, so exactly.
2: Right. Yeah. From an automotive standpoint, I think Sony's car was the biggest surprise, Sam. What Yeah
1: yeah it's certainly no nobody was expecting sony to unveil a car during their press conference
0: well so Um, how much of a car like how much sony is in that car versus how much magna because i know that like magna partnered with them in the body design and and you look at the pictures of it it shows real skill in how you form that metal and put it together and and i i'm assuming that that's Uh, magna's expertise on display
1: i i would say so yeah you know so you know magna you know, as an automotive supplier, and you spent quite a bit of time with them on Tuesday, I think Rebecca. Right. Um, yes. You know, as an automotive supplier, Magna makes just about anything that goes into cars, except for tires. Actually, uh, that's one of the few things they don't <laughs> right. make. Um, you know, and and they they do full vehicle production. You know, they do. They're among you know, in addition to supplying parts and. And systems, they also have a contract manufacturing division called Magna Stier in Austria, um, you know, which builds vehicles for a number of known brands like for example, Jaguar, where they build the Eye mm-hmm. Pace there, or they build, yeah, a
0: little thing called the G Wagon, you know. Yeah, they, they the build the Mercedes G Wagon,
1: <laughs> the, uh, the you Supra, know, the, the, the yeah, the Toyota Supra, oh, and BMW, Supra? And, yeah, yeah and the too. BMW Z4 are built there. Um, the Aston Martin Rapide was built by Magna, yeah. So there, and you know, many. Uh, they also build the uh, the BMW or the, the Mini Countryman and Paceman are built by Magna. So there's there's a huge array of vehicles that that Magna builds now oh, or they has built. Porsche in the past. as
2: well. They yeah. They, Porsche. Yeah, they've boxed her in the Cayman.
1: Yeah, they've done they've done Boxster and Cayman production, you know, for as overflow for Porsche uh when they needed extra capacity. So you know Matt and you know Magna, you know, has partnerships with a wide variety of companies, you know, and, and you know has often built concept cars for other manufacturers. And that's essentially what they did here. Sony wanted a platform to, that they could use to highlight some of the the various things that they produce, uh, such as uh, audio systems, in-car audio systems, um, camera sensors that are used for both for surround view uh, cameras, but also for driver assist systems, you know, for forward collision warning and other systems, uh, you know, the screen, the displays, you know, and a wide variety of other components. So as I understand it, Sony went to Magna and said, Hey, we want a platform to show off all of the the stuff that that we can supply to the auto industry. And, you know, and Magna basically built them a car that they could install their stuff in. You know, so that's basically the Vision S. You know, so I don't think that we will ever see, you know, a production Sony car. Uh, you never know. I mean, it's, it's, it's nothing's ever impossible in this business, but it's it's unlikely uh, it's it's mainly just you know something to showcase what Sony can do.
0: And w- so yeah, what exactly is that? Like, what does Sony want to become more of an OEM? Do they want to be developed? No, do they want to I, be no. more like Bosch?
1: I, I think it's I think you know more just more of a supply. You know, get uh, expand their presence in the supply base. You know, so you know doing more displays. You know, in vehicle displays. Um, you know, well and beyond more. stereo too. Yeah, you know, beyond audio. Right you know, certainly doing more sensors, you know, camera sensors, especially, you know, Sony, you know, is widely considered to produce, you know, some of the best camera sensors, imaging sensors, you know, in the market, you know, most most of the better smartphones on the market today use Sony sensors in them, you know, you know, all the all the iPhones have Sony imaging sensors in them. Most of the Samsung phones, you know, most, you know, the Uh, Google pixels, you know, all, all the best can, all the best phones have Sony imaging sensors in them. Uh, So, you know, if you can leverage that technology to have better vision systems for cars, you know, that's, that's a big thing. Uh, You know, and and there's a variety of other components that, that Sony has the capability to manufacture as well.
0: Have, have either of you ever committed to a Sony device on a consumer level? You ever had that experience? <laughs> I've
1: had, I've had a few over the years.
0: Yeah. 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 I have too. Um, Sony, <laughs> Sony's, and they, they do this on the pro level too. They, they make great stuff. It's usually well engineered. Um, and that's, that's about it. The support is terrible. <laughs> and like, <laughs> well, so I have this, this little, um, uh, it, it was like it was a competitor to an iPod. It was a network Walkman NWHT5 uh-huh. and it's got a hard drive in it and it sounds really good. The first iPods didn't sound that great. And me being a contrarian, I didn't, I didn't want to buy into the Apple ecosystem with iTunes and everything. So the, the hardware device itself. Great. Sony does great hardware. Uh, the software side of it to like get stuff on and off of it. Um, not great. And they stopped support for it. So basically you have this device that's kind of a brick now because you have to go, you know, look on SourceForge to find <laughs> some program that you can use to load stuff on and off the little device that still works and it works great. It's fantastic. But, you know, that's that's and, and on the pro video side, Sony has done that before, too, where they've just like decided, you know what, um, we're not going to support that thing that you've built your million dollar facility around anymore. Yeah. We're, we're done with that.
1: So well, unfortunately, unfortunately that's all too common a problem, you know, across the consumer electronics industry. You know, if you aren't, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in any market segment, chances are, you know, if there's software support that's required for it, you're not going to get it. And that's, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, as cars become more software driven uh, you know, Consumers need to think about, you know, before they go buy a car from some upstart, um, you know, are, are they actually going (laughs) to, if it depends on software, are they actually going to get that software? Are they going to get those updates over the life of the vehicle? And, you know, that, that could be problem, you know, increasingly problematic.
0: Right. Are they free or is there a fee? Are they free for the first owner? And what about the second owners, like consecutive owners? Like if you, if you buy a laptop, for example, and then you sell it on Craigslist, well, how is that transfer of ownership handled? Um, you know, if it's a two-year-old laptop and it still has a warranty or something like all of those things are are open questions, I suppose. Um, the, the car itself looked really cool, though. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> wait, no, it's, it's a good-looking
0: car. Uh, I wonder who designed it. That that It would be interesting right. at, over the next few months to sort of un, uh, undo the, the layers of that onion and see where, where exactly it came from if, we, my, so if my, we start to learn more.
1: My guess is it's almost entirely from inside of Magna.
2: Yeah. My guess is that as well. And as Sam mentioned, I did work with them uh, at CES and got some deep dives into some of their technology and their, some of their capabilities. It's really, I, I have to say it. I think Sam, you and I went back in October that we uh, went to their like that, showcase. Yeah. Uh, and it's it, the company continues to impress from a development standpoint, from a, um, Capabilities, technology. I mean, they really do touch almost every piece of the vehicle. And and it was impressive.
0: They've wanted to be a car maker for a while, too. Um Well, they are. Well, i no, but I mean like yeah. they, they almost bought Saturn from GM. Yeah, oh, they, they,
1: yeah, they did have they did have an offer in to buy Saturn when GM was going through its bankruptcy process. Um, but that that deal fell through.
2: You know, they operate in 28 different countries. I mean, they really do have uh, quite, quite a, a stem to stern or grill to trunk. What would be the right word <laughs> uh, sort of a approach uh, to bumper to bumper?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. So one of the fun things that I worked with uh, that w- we were showcasing was the, uh, their powertrain capabilities. And they have this, you know, when they come in and meet with a client a prospective client, They can actually you tell them what your requirements are. So we want to build uh, something for the Chinese market. And as soon as that as soon as they put that into their system, then all the regulations that dictate the Chinese automotive market are automatically loaded. And then they have whether you want to have a all-wheel drive or, or what your driveline preferences are, what kind of, whether you want it to be a hybrid or not, uh, you know, and, and and then also then you can have priorities of like eco is the most important thing with this engine or dynamic, uh, this kind of list level of fuel economy. So they have all these uh, building blocks and then they, you know, magically pop out this what they would suggest based on your parameters. And it was just a really clever way of showing, again, like some of their, a very complex discussion, but in a very simple manner. And so they really were focusing at CES on making this company better, uh, uh, getting people to understand it better and getting people more familiar with what they supply. The other part that I saw, which um, they had touched on when we were, out, out there was the lighting systems. And they have these super, super thin LEDs that come on these strips. And basically anything that you can design they can build it in lighting in terms of of curly cues and shapes and and you know like personalization like on an electric vehicle where you don't need a grill they can make that grill light up and like for pedestrians they can have it flash so if they you know if somebody's passing in front like they can or they sense somebody is there they can actually have the grill light up and flash warning signs lights whatever uh to help people you know to help with pedestrian crossing and and animals and stuff like that and i thought that was really cool
0: you know the lighting that's a great uh jumping off point too. the the other thing that we had on our list to talk about was the audi uh a.i. me or a.i. i don't they always come up with these weird (laughs) names i'm not quite sure how to say it
1: a.i. me was the way that they were saying it yeah
0: Amy, well, not Amy, what you
2: not, Amy, what you're going to do, Amy, (laughs) but something else.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's written like a ratio. So it's A.I. to M.E. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. Anyway, it has lights all over it, too, uh, because it's a it's an autonomous vehicle. And uh, one of the things that they're uh, the the idea is uh, to engage um, pedestrians and users through the lighting system on the car. So that that seemed pretty cool. It's a good idea. There's some thinking going on.
1: Yeah. I, I had a chance to uh, go for a ride in it on uh, Monday afternoon. Audi was doing some demo rides up on the roof of the parking garage at the Aria hotel. And uh, so this is a concept that they showed last fall at the Frankfurt motor show uh, It's designed, you know, as an urban mobility vehicle. So, you know, it's a, it's a small four seater, uh, compact, um, vehicle, um, and it's optionally autonomous. So you can drive it or not when, uh, when you switch from manual driving mode to autonomous, the, you know, the, the, the wood shelf that sits above the, the instrument panel actually lifts up the steering, the whole steering column, uh, the steering wheel, f- uh, folds down to a horizontal position and then the steering wheel and column retract underneath and then it lowers back down again. So you have no, no controls there. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a concept, so it's obviously far from complete, but it, it drove around in a, in a pattern, you know, on the, uh, on the roof of the parking garage. Uh, interestingly, they, they put some QR codes up on the various uh, light posts and things like that, that uh, the system, the cameras in the car used for localization to figure out where it was and to navigate around this parking garage. <laughs> um, and then after after driving around for a couple of minutes, then um, the uh, the Audi uh, representative in the back seat handed Sean O'Kane from The Verge, who was in there with me and I, uh, a pair of VR goggles that we put on. And you know, this is one of the ideas that's been talked about for autonomous cars: is how oh, you can sit back and you know be in any kind of environment. I and am put some...
2: getting motion sickness just thinking about it. Well,
1: that was my thought <laughs> <Go> too. <on. laughs> uh, but what they've done is they they actually matched uh the environment that you see in the vr goggles to uh to the motion of the car so you know as the vehicle moves you know so as you're sitting still you know you're you're not you're you're not moving in the vr environment you're 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 standing still and you can look around but then as the car starts to move you you're actually moving through that vr environment at the you know at a corresponding speed similarly as you know as it turns and so on you, you know you're turning one of the issues with VR with motion sickness is that mismatch between the physiological feedback that you have from your environment or the lack thereof versus the motion that your eyes are seeing you know and this is you know this is one of the it's it's an evolutionary thing you know where you know when when what your body feels doesn't match what your eyes are seeing you know that's what um, you know it, it's a it's a reaction it's a it's a you know, we've evolved to assume that, you know, maybe we've eaten something that's poisonous, you know, and that, that's what causes us to get nauseous and throw up. The <laughs> but, only thing
2: I'm eating right now is ginger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, ginger's you know, supposed to help for that. But, yes, but, exactly. But, if, but if, if the motion matches what your eyes are seeing, you know, then you have a lot less of that. Now, you know, there's no guarantee. I, will, I, mean, I would we love were, to we try were, this. We were going at ver- to, a very low I, speed. I have to try
2: this. Yes. Yeah. But I, I mean, really. I have to try this because the motion sickness, just thinking about it.
1: Yeah, I, no, I, I agree. I, you know, I don't <laughs> like using VR, you know, when I'm standing still, because, you know, I, I have, you know, I don't get motion sickness in cars or when I'm flying, but I have started to get a little nauseous, you know, at times when I'm using VR. So it it, it does, um, you know, I, I didn't have any issues with this one. So it was, it was pretty interesting okay. in that respect.
2: No, that sounds good. My mother used to tell us that she would get motion sickness when she would rock us in the rocking chair. Oh, really? So I, yes, so I come from a long line of motion sickness people. But I, I do, I am able to control it with a variety of techniques. But I, I think that that would be really interesting to try because I do sometimes get a little nauseous even with ACC, like in the Toyota Highlander last year. So, um, but they are those are getting better, and so I'm sure that they're working on improving the the experience of driving in a self-driving car
1: yeah and that's actually an area where there is a lot of research being done with automated vehicles is um, the connection between motion sickness because you're actually a lot you know you're a lot more likely to get motion sickness in a car when you're not driving than when you are you know when you're not in control of the situation for sure and so that that is a concern with with avs uh is you know riders in these things, especially if, you know, if you've got vehicles that have non-traditional seating arrangements, you know, where you've got lounge seating around the inside of a, a shuttle or something like that, um, you know, the the likelihood of getting motion sickness is a lot higher. So they're working on how to mitigate that.
2: Well, if any of our listeners are involved in that kind of testing, I am willing to volunteer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: bring your barf bags.
0: Exactly. The, the idea to me is just like, oh, you could do like a curated tour. You could do like, it wouldn't have to be VR, though. It could just be like the audio system. Like the car could drive you around and be like, look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament. And like, you could just <laughs> have like a... Uh, anyway. I will uh, say
2: the other thing that we saw that I got to test drive at CES was from
0: Nissan. Yes, I was going there next. That yeah, sounds that really was, cool.
2: Yeah, you know, it was their, what they call e-force and F instead
0: of an f it's a four
2: uh, so, so i can
0: because of the star wars tie-ins I, imme- <laughs> I, I heard that immediately and i was like oh they're gonna do an ad where it's like use e-force and yeah but it yeah. Was the e-force so,
2: yeah um but you know what it it was so it's basically <laughs> nissan's version of torque vectoring and um, and they put it on In this case, we I think Sam described it best earlier before we went on the air. It was um, it was put on the on the leaf as a test mule, but it is going to be coming out on the Aria that they showed at CES, which is I thought was a beautiful looking vehicle inside and out. So that was that was really pretty cool. But basically what the C-Force does is, you know, it helps with traction. It helps with performance. And it certainly Helped with re- uh, speaking of car sickness, reduced body motion for sure. I mean, I went around th- I went around nine times uh, on this very tight, short track and in a donut s- configuration, basically. And I was only driving for three of those laps. And I was really surprised that I did not get motion sickness at all because I, I have been known to. Um, but it was pretty cool, and and I think that it, it does it does a good job of keeping the car much flatter on acceleration, braking, cornering. It it was really good. I think I think they did a really nice job on it.
0: Why were they so resistant to the idea of a leaf with this though? Like for years they'd said like yeah we're not we're not doing a two motor leaf. Is it just because they don't want to uh, set that I, expectation?
1: I, I suspect it's a packaging issue. You know, just with the size of the leaf. Um, you know they. They pro- with the, my guess is that this development mule that you're driving probably had a smaller than <clears throat> than normal battery size for a Leaf, in Maybe. order to in order to fit the uh, that rear motor in there, um, and it's that so I would I would guess it's all about packaging because the new mm. the Aria the production version of the Aria so they, they showed the Aria concept I think at the Tokyo Auto Show last fall. Uh, right. And they, they also had it on display here at CES. It's, you know, it's kind of a rogue sized crossover. Um, and this, you know, this is going to be uh, Nissan's next EV. I had a chance to talk to uh, uh, Takeo Asami uh, about, you know, where they were going. And uh, so Nissan is, is really there for plug-in vehicles. They're focused all, they're all in on uh, EVs and they're, they're not really pursuing the, um, power split, what we call power split hybrids, you know, the, the Toyota style hybrids uh, anymore. Um, you know, going forward, you're going to have basically battery electric vehicles and their e-power system, which is a series hybrid, which they have, they've had in Japan uh, for several years now on, on a couple of different models and that's going to be coming here uh, by next year as well. Um, I think the Aria, the production Aria uh, is also going to, it's probably going to be a 2021 model. Uh, but we'll, you know, so we'll see that. Yeah, I think it's twenty twenty one as well. Yeah, I think we'll probably see the production version maybe at the LA Auto Show this year, um, and then uh, you know going into production next year.
2: Yeah, it was it was great though. I mean, I think that it 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 definitely provided a nice sense of stability uh, to this vehicle, and I think that that's something that's important. You know, people often that's what, one of the complaints about crossovers, right? Even almost regardless of size, is that you have that higher, uh, higher center of gravity. And this definitely gave it some nice, um, some nice weight. And it does weigh almost 200 pounds more uh, with the system in. So that will definitely you know change some of the dynamics of it. But it was cool. I'm glad they gave us the opportunity to, uh, you know, to test it out. And unfortunately, the test overall, we were only able, our group was only able to do the constant radius test. We weren't able, we did do the acceleration one though, which was, which was pretty good, but it was, it was almost like a casual quick thing. Um, But it was, you know, it was cool to try it out and to do that, the, that two motor prototype. So that was neat. I liked it.
0: You know, we're never going to see a production version of what the Mercedes Benz, AVTR avatar, whatever nonsense <laughs> uh, that thing, but it, buried in there. Is the fact that they have a graphene battery. And so that seems like the most important mm-hmm. news there is that, that that battery tech is is something they're they're tinkering with. And we may see production graphene batteries at some point soon.
1: Yeah. I mean, there, there's already graphite in batteries today, um, you know, as, as part of the, the chemistry in there. And so I think it's a safe bet that at some point in the next probably, you know, five to 10 years, uh, we will see graphene. In batteries, and for those that aren't familiar with it, graphite, graphene—they are all various molecular forms of carbon. Um, You know, graphite has a a crystalline structure. Uh, You know, it's a three-dimensional crystalline structure. The distinction with graphene is its uh, its crystal structure is actually flat. So you get basically you can get layers, single atomic layers. That it's it's a flat structure that has some very unique properties and it's also very highly uh conductive both heat conductive and electricity conductive
0: yeah and it's recyclable it's not uh that's one of the big issues with batteries right now is that they're it's hard to fully recycle a battery and uh so that's the so the claim to fame right now for for graphing batteries is that they're fully recyclable And it may not be the breakthrough that we all we want the holy grail right the uh the incredible range the fast charging the non-environmentally hazardous kind of thing i don't know that you're ever going to get there with batteries but I- i'm really interested in in uh this different approach or the, the rest of the avtr was um yeah i couldn't wrap my really <laughs> head around it <laughs> <laughs> like the thing that pro- so it's like tech for tech's sake right it projects stuff into your hand and then you you like you make selections there. Like a lot of times when it's like these these displays of tech, right? It's like people just poking at things in thin air, and then we like project little buttons and stuff there. Like I that interface seems crappy to me. I, I don't know why but, that's like.
2: I didn't understand anything in the Mercedes booth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so just just for a little background, yeah. You know, the, the the name of this thing, you know, the, this concept was actually. Uh, supposedly inspired by the movie Avatar. And they worked with James Cameron and his his crew uh, on this thing, you know, because so, Cameron has yeah. apparently been working on like four sequels to Avatar for you, the last decade. Yeah.
0: You know, the best so, thing about James Cameron is that his wife has, ki- his ex-wife has kicked his ass for Oscars. Who's
2: his ex-wife?
0: Catherine Bigelow.
2: I, Catherine Bigelow. That's it. So I think that this CES though I, unfortunately, I didn't get to see nearly as much as I wanted to. But I I do think that, you know, we continue to see that marriage uh, between automotive, mobility, technology. And it was funny because somebody posted something on Twitter before we left about like, are automakers going to CES really still? And I didn't understand that. I was like, what are you talking about if you don't if you don't go? Like, I don't know. I just...
0: You know, another biggest piece of consumer electronics everybody owns. Right. Like, exactly. That, you
1: know, a, a lot of automakers don't go to CES. And in fact, well, GM, some automakers but, that have in the past didn't go this year.
2: Right. But next year, there's going to be a separate, I think, building six that they're building now is all automotive. And so GM is coming back. I've heard other people were going to get our own haul, which there's pros and cons, of course, but. It's certainly a whole lot of more room, and there's a bridge that that connects the all the other halls. Um, so, you know, CES is certainly making a commitment to automotive, and with brands like Audi pulling out of New York, you know, again, we we're really starting to see a lot of disruption in the um, in that show space.
0: Well, so from my perspective, as a journalist who has sometimes Covered shows. I mean, like the occasional journalist. You, you guys are doing much, much harder, more diligent work at it than I am. Um, <laughs> but it's it takes its toll on on you folks. Like it's just brutal to be flying around all the time, and then your coverage is uh, maybe wide, but it's it's shallow necessarily because you're only seeing what what they're they want you to see. In that sense, you don't get to to handle the thing you know it's it's like a launch event for an automaker same same kind of thing like you get you get flown in you get the company line and you get to drive it around on this predetermined route it shows it off in its best light and i I get it like sometimes that it's like you want control of your, your messaging um but it's it's somewhat less meaningful i think uh coverage in in a lot of ways like being there and and being able to talk to the people is super valuable like getting the interviews that's that's all great but like sh- showing their press releases like eh, or their, their press conferences is is um I don't know I guess it all goes together I don't have a great solution for it but I, I think that the show spaces of of maybe of limited value or uh the value is shifting to other other venues or other private events that they can really control versus uh, being among the noise of something like CES where it's just a huge show.
2: And And it's the investment. I mean, they make, you know, the amount of money that they are charged to participate in these shows is outrageous. And really they look at it and say, what's our ROI.
1: Right. And you know, the, the thing that's always been different about CES, you know, a lot of people have blamed CES for the decline of auto shows And I don't think that that's actually fair because, you know, see auto shows have always been the place where manufacturers have shown off their new products that are going on sale this year or maybe next year, you know, but it's, it's near term real products, you know, and, Mm. and it's the place, you know, on the show floor where you see all the stuff that they are selling today, you know, it's where consumers can go and see, you know, Ford and Volvo and Volkswagen and, and all these other brands in one place at one time that said, You know, this year, or, you know, CES has never been about that. It's never been about a place about selling products, you know, and with a couple of very rare exceptions, it's never been a place where manufacturers have shown off, you know, their new product that's coming to market in the near term. You know, it's always been about looking at future, future looking technology and, and ideas, you know, silly things like, you know, the Hyundai SA1. Uh, you know, and the Mercedes Benz avatar, you know, things that are way far out there, you know, for, you know, but for the, you know, the traditional trade shows, uh, you know, the auto shows manufacturers have been pulling out of there because as you said, they haven't been getting that return on investment, you know, from doing the media events there, because as with CES and any other trade show, you know, when everybody in your industry is there, now you're fighting, you know, for attention to, you know, to get that, Fifteen minutes of of media attention for the day, and Mm -hmm. what they want is to be able to get an entire news cycle. And so they're increasingly doing events separate from auto shows. Like for example, you know GM showed the new Suburban and Tahoe last month uh, here in Detroit. You know at the uh, at the Joe Lewis or the Little Caesars Arena, Uh, they did the debut there next month or you know next week. Uh, you know, GMC is going to show off their version of it, the Tahoe, in in Vale, and then next month, uh Cadillac is going to show off the Escalade in Hollywood. It's you know doing these standalone events. You know they can get much more attention for that without battling everybody else for the news cycle.
0: Yeah, it makes sense from their perspective. I mean, it's just a business perspective. It, mm-hmm. it just it's a shift. The only only constant is change. Yep. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And at at some point we may see them go back to doing auto shows more again. You know, but, you know, for example, you know, at, at CES this year, uh, although GM actually was planning to exhibit at CES this year, they were going to make an announcement about um, that was apparently had had to do with their electric truck program. That's Um, right. But the, uh, the vehicle that they were planning to, the concept vehicle they were planning to show off apparently Production, uh, the construction of that vehicle got delayed during the fall because of the strike, and yes. so they they weren't ready, so they they pulled out. But you know, other manufacturers that have been there in past years, like Volkswagen, um, you know, was not there this year. You know, and you know, somebody um, I think on Twitter uh, or somewhere somebody pinged me to ask if Volvo was at CES, and Volvo has never gone to CES, and in fact, now they're not even doing traditional auto shows anymore. So you know, it's 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 this is. Yeah, you know, this uh, this is just an overall trend, and, and it's not just in the auto industry. Even you know in other industries, you know trade shows are are suffering because uh, companies you know, uh, for, you know just as you know Apple used to do, you know annual events or annual unveilings at MacWorld Expo in San Francisco. You know that's where they unveiled the iPhone and the original iPad. They stopped going to MacWorld Expo, and now MacWorld Expo is gone. You know, and you know it goes in other industries as well.
0: I, I'm not that alarmed by it. I think that oh. um, messages will keep getting out and the less we fly around, the better.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Jonathan it, Gitlin from Ars Technica had a really good tweet about this yesterday. He's committing to, uh, to no longer go fly to events where all they're going to do is show off the new vehicle. You know, if you don't even, if you don't get to at least drive it, he's not, not, mm. not even going to bother going. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I still think the best way to to get honest coverage of the the cars is um, you know put them in regional fleets or do small regional events. Uh, the, the small regional event sort of gets you back to some of the the issues with in investment. It's it's probably more expensive to do it that way because you're you're splitting it up and you're sending people in cars in multiple places um, versus having all of the people come to you in one place over a condensed period of time. So. There's, there's some I think it's, to do. I think
1: regional drives are actually still cheaper than doing, you know, multiple waves, you know, coming to one venue because they're usually at, you know, lower cost um, venues, you know, yeah, like, that's for true. example, you know, Hyundai, you know, this week they're doing um, the media drives for the venue in Miami, you know, but they, they also do regional drives at various locations around the country, like, including here. You know, in the Ann Arbor area where they have their tech center, and they just do the drive drive programs and the events right from their tech center, so they don't have to pay any rent for anything like that. They just have to put the cars on a truck and ship them somewhere.
0: Yeah. So, hey, we got totally off topic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is All there any part of the that- discussion? Yeah, that, that's true. Um we had a we had a couple of other things on the list we're getting out towards a, about an hour and a half. Um but I did you Sam you got to drive uh, not drive. You got to ride <laughs> in the Yandex automated vehicle which um that's got I so Yandex if people don't know like they're like the Russian Google, right? Like
1: pretty much yeah. They they started off as a Russian search engine company very much like Google. <clears throat> they a couple a few years ago they launched Yandex taxi, which is their, uh, their ride hailing service, you know, very much like Uber, Lyft, DD. Um, and they operate that in Russia and 17 other countries. And in 2017 they launched their own automated driving program, uh, much like Google. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of good uh, software engineers in Russia. Um, and they've, they've made some pretty, pretty rapid progress with this program. They, they actually came to CES last year. I wasn't able to connect with them last year, but I did get to go for a ride in one of their cars this year. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, And uh, they had, they had two cars there this year and of all the rides I've taken, my very first trip to CES was in 2008 when I went with GM uh, to go check out the, uh, the Chevy Tahoe that won the DARPA urban challenge in 2007. And I went for a ride in that thing. That was in a course set up in one of the parking lots at the convention center. Um, And, it was driverless. There was no safety driver in there because there was no room for a safety driver with all the equipment they had in there. I was the only one in the vehicle, uh, except for one person, one, one uh, technician in the back. Um, But uh, this was the first, and I've taken other rides without safety drivers on test tracks. This is the first time I've been out on public roads without a safety driver. So, you know, cruising around, you know, about a four mile loop around uh, the Southeast side of Las Vegas, uh, from the Hard Rock Cafe, um, you know it was about a 15 minute ride, and there was no—I was sitting in the right rear seat, nobody in front of me behind the steering wheel. Um, there was one uh, operator on the the front passenger seat with his hand hovering near the, the kill switch, so if anything went wrong, he could just <laughs> hit the big red button and stop everything. But that's um, comforting, <laughs> yeah. But you know, it, it was it was a surprisingly good ride. Um, you know, it, interestingly, you know, I this past week while i was in vegas i also had four rides um in aptivs automated vehicles on the lift network just just through the lift app they have 30 cars that are running <clears throat> 30 automated cars that are running on the lift app i'm and so bummed
2: i never got to there was never one available when i tried i was yeah, super I, bummed
1: I, I managed to score four rides in them it's awesome because you were I, in
2: them you yeah selfish so yeah sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, um, you know those have you know a safety driver in the front pa- passenger seat and another operator in the front uh, or safety driver in the driver's seat, operator in the passenger seat. Um, the one in the passenger seat was there to uh, keep an eye on things, answer questions for passengers, you know, help educate people about the uh, the self-driving capabilities. And those cars, you know, as I said, you know one of the things about those cars, is in Nevada, um, you you can get a permit to from the state to operate on um, public roads, but to on private property, like for example, hotel parking lots or you know valet areas or parking garages, you have to get a permit from each one of those, the owners of that property in order to use it. And Aptiv hasn't gone through that process of of getting permits from every single property owner in, you know, on the Las Vegas strip, and in downtown Las Vegas where they operate, Um, because Yandex was only going from this one venue. They did get permission both from the state to operate driverless and also from the hard rock hotel, you know, to operate in the garage. So right from the get go, you know, pulling out of the, the parking garage at the, at the, at the hard rock, you know, there was nobody there and, you know, it just cruised right out. And the the car actually surprisingly was surprisingly aggressive in its driving style, which they explained to me you know it was you know, it was originally tuned to operate in Russia and then later in, in Tel Aviv where they also do testing. Um, you know the drivers are you know perhaps um, a little more aggressive, aggressive let's say yeah, yeah than, <laughs> definitely than, than what we are mostly here. Uh, and so you know in order to survive in that environment, the car has to be drive a little more aggressively. You know, so it, it, it accelerated harder coming out of the car can garage when I went to make lane changes. You know, it was a little quicker to switch lanes than, you know, than the active cars were. And you know, in, in one of my rides in the active car, you know, it was, you know, it started to switch lanes as it was approaching my dest- our destination. And, you know, it saw a car coming up in the from behind in that lane at a faster speed than it was comfortable with. So it pulled back into the lane it was in till that car passed. Then it did the lane change. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, a lot of human drivers would have just said, you know, I'm just going to assume that he's going <laughs> to, he's going to slow down or pull over, you know, to the other lane and, you know, completed that lane change. The, the Aptiv car is much more conservative in its approach and they're, you know, they're biased towards safety, you know, because they're operating, you know, in a high traffic environment on the strip, the Andex car, you know, the loop we were on, it was early in the morning. There was very little traffic on those roads, uh, on the roads that they chose, you know, so it, There were no real challenges to it. It didn't do any unprotected left turns, things like that. Um, So, you know, it worked, uh, but it's hard to judge in that particular operating environment. You know, hopefully at some point I'll get a chance to evaluate it. They're going to be back here in Detroit in June uh, during the auto show, which is moving to June this year. Um, One of the things that's going to be going on because, you know, we'll have better weather in June than we do in January. There's going to be a number of AV companies that are, Operating rides around the downtown Detroit area, Uh, and Yandex is one of those companies. So I'll be curious to get back into it here, you know, and see how it behaves, you know, in a little more high traffic environment. Should be a good time. Yeah.
0: In Detroit, it's going to have to. You know what they should do? They should. um, They should bring it to Woodward. (laughs) To the Dream Cruise. Although the Dream Cruise is that's actually that's that's actually
1: pretty easy because you're just going in a straight line. You know, and, you know, it's basically all you need. There's adaptive cruise control and lane centering. One last item I want to mention. The Hyundai SA1. Oh, come on. Did, did, did you did you go look at this thing, Rebecca? The what? The Hyundai SA1. The
0: the air the airplane. Oh,
1: the air the taxi. Airplane. Yeah,
0: that was ridiculous.
1: Yes, <laughs> I agree.
0: Like, wait, wait.
1: The, this whole come urban on. air mobility it thing. A full,
2: it was a huge. I mean, it was full scale. Yeah, it but it reminded me of something in the forties like designed in the forties and it's, it's an aircraft. I mean, it's,
1: it's, it's, these these are not flying cars.
2: Don't, don't even get me started because we have put together a solid podcast, but one of the things that we need to do (laughs) is stop calling new, what people perceive as new things that already exist. For instance, a shared ride is a carpool or a we already have that.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
2: This was what, what Hyundai showed and I didn't get a lot of details, but just visually I looked at that and thought that is an airplane. It's yes. not it's, a flying car.
1: Oh, it's, 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 it's a, it's a cross between an airplane and a helicopter.
0: We have both of those already. Yes. it's No, it, it's a large scale drone.
1: It's, you know, it's vertical we takeoff. We have those as well. it's not even autonomous. It has a pilot.
0: Uh,
2: I, I mean, I just, okay. I didn't no. understand it. And I didn't have time, unfortunately, to, to indulge I, I, them. I went
1: to the press conference and, and also a and a afterwards. Uh, you know, this is something that's not coming until 2030 anyway. So... Uh, I just had to mention it, but, you know, th- I don't think there's anything else that needs to be said, except don't plan on, you know, using any of these kinds of EV tall aircraft it, it, anytime soon.
0: You yes. know, it's going to be really inefficient. Uh, commuting in airplanes, aircraft. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> like at least it's electric. Yeah, I mean, that's it's cool. Uh, no, it's, <laughs> so the amount of space it takes up. Right. It's got it's got that wingspan. That would be, it, it, it sure it can take off and land vertically. That's cool. It doesn't need a runway in, in that sense. But it's still like, it's got a, it's a large physical p- footprint just for the wings and the motors. And it, it's got five motors. And then you you look at the passenger compartment or the,
1: the it's, it's tiny. It's got r- room for four passengers plus a pilot.
0: I mean, come on. That's come like putting on. wings on a Ford Escort and flying it around. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Well, I I, yeah. I think these kind of things, and especially like twenty thirty, between now and twenty thirty, anything could happen. I think we're we're better off um, b- making uh, a- electrified transit a thing, and even if you're you're stringing catenaries around certain municipalities instead of like straight EVs, like just figure out a way to power this stuff with electricity and get it out there.
1: And uh, totally agree. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, and and I saw there was interesting. Interesting little sort of side thread. Like, why are why are so many car riders um, fans of transit? It's because, yeah, we yeah. a we like to drive, and so y'all are in our way. Okay?
2: Exactly. I love that. I saw that too. That was awesome.
0: <laughs> but also, you can like cars and driving, and also want to make sure that we preserve the ecology and don't destroy our our uh, our environment with fossil fuels. Like, those are two things that can exist. Um, well, yes. well, that and
1: you know. the more you like to drive, the less likely you are to actually enjoy a commute. Yes. So, I mean, when I was commuting to a job outside of my home, I would have much rather had the option to take a bus or a train to get to Dearborn or Detroit or Livonia, than you know, to drive there every day. Sitting in traffic. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not, it's not fun. Uh, You know, I, I take my Miata to go out and drive in the countryside, you know, to have some fun. That's not something, you know, you do on a daily basis, you know, commuting to work. So, uh, you know, having a good transit system, I think, is much more valuable because it does make the other stuff more enjoyable.
0: That and, you know, it's the industry we cover, right? We are attuned to the uh, the emissions and economies of what we're doing, more so than just people who just do it because it's, it's what you have to do. And then the impact on all of the other sectors of, of the, the population. Like, yeah, it's great. Uber and, and stuff exists as a shadow public transit system for people who can afford it. <laughs> like, where yeah. does that leave all the people who can't afford it, who, who are unbanked, who, you know, so this is our industry. We should know these things. We should cover that. And by, by covering it, we have, we wind up with opinions and yeah, I think a lot of us wind up really enthusiastic about transit because it's a, uh, it's a good way to move around even though we enjoy driving ourselves, you know, like exactly. Right. That that's it. I'm getting off the soapbox.
1: <laughs> We're gonna... All right, uh, just just one one more note. Um, while I was at CES on Tuesday afternoon, I spent a couple hours with Leo Laporte and Ant Pruitt from the Twit Podcast Network, and we recorded uh, several videos of some cool uh, cool automotive technology there. And I will include a link to that in the uh, in the show notes.
0: Oh, definitely, yes. Anytime, that those guys, uh, anytime you have something to share from what you're doing with those guys, uh, we should make sure that we're letting everybody on Wheelbearings now. So. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for joining me on this lovely, windy Sunday, and we'll, we'll catch everybody uh, later on. Bye.
2: Bye. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Find us at wheelbearings.media and on Twitter as at wheelbearingscast. Remember, there's only one vowel. That's the A in cast. We're also at Car Review Tweets on Twitter. Or you could just email us. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media.